Yeah, we're quite close here. Sure. Well, you need to. Do you want me to move over? No, it's nice. No, it's nice. <laughs> Actually, yeah, can you move over? Yeah, that's nice. Smell the good, Charlie. Just a wee bit, no, I hadn't planned to do anything, but. Keep it tight. It's a tough crowd. Cheers, Smiley. Hello. Hello, I am Jude McCarthy. I'm the director of So I'm going to quiz Brian on your behalf um, about what it's like to be a director and what skills he needs. Um, but I want you to just jump in with any questions whenever they come up. Just speak up. Um, and we'll also leave some time at the end, maybe 25 minutes for questions if you'd rather leave them till the end. But please, you can please just you know join in please whenever you want to. Yeah. So Brian, you. Um, have been directing for about 30 years? Uh, no, I, um, I left university about 30 years ago and I went into... My first job was in a cutting room, so I started as a trainee assistant editor, then worked as an assistant, then an editor. And I was fortunate that some of the people who had cut stuff for have always been freelance, I've never had a staff job. Some of the companies I've cut stuff for knew I wanted to direct, and they gave me... a try at editing documentary, uh, directing documentary and factual television. I did that for a few years, <clears throat> but I'd always wanted to do drama and uh, gradually managed to get myself into that just by finding out what was going on and keeping up relationships with people who were in the drama world and I got to do, actually the first clip we'll show you is uh, from a, a short film that I made in 1998, that was my first series uh, uh, foray into the world of drama. So that's the sort of nutshell, basically, how I got there. Can I just take you right back to the beginning, though, and what did you study at university, and do you think it matters what you study at university if you want a career as a director in film and television? I studied... I can only speak from my own perspective, and that is to say I studied English and Film and Media Studies at Stirling. And at that point, the Film and Media Studies department was very, very theoretical was little or no practical work. So any experience we wanted in that world, we took out to find ourselves. I ended up uh, going out and doing running jobs for a small film and video workshop in a place called Alva, which isn't that far from Stirling. When I graduated, they took me on as a trainee assistant. So I was very, very fortunate in that respect, because otherwise I don't know how I would have got into it. So while you were studying, you also did sort of extracurricular yes. grafting yeah. work of your own? Yeah. And how important do you think it is to do that and to make connections with people? It's very important. It is very important because it's about getting yourself known and getting yourself known as someone who's keen to get involved and never underestimate how, the, how valuable it is to go and work unpaid for somebody uh, whether it's on a daily basis or weekly as an intern you've got to take every chance you're given I would say now my 
degree skills brought pretty little to my actual practical work. I learned that on the job. What I have found in the past is working in, uh, particularly in documentary and factual, it's people who come with a different discipline are of more worth than those who come with media degrees. But that's a personal uh, reading of the situation. For example, we both worked at uh, a current affairs company for a while, and people who had politics degrees or language degrees or history, history and economics, they were of more worthwhile than us with their sort of, you know, our shining film and media degrees, which, you know, were of a certain worth, but not as much as the others. So I, th I think that often people who come to film and television from a different discipline are in... There's no disadvantage to that. But if you want to direct, or you, you need to have an understanding of it, a visual understanding. So whether that involves photography or painting or drama or anything like that, it's about storytelling and, you know, that ability. The stuff you need to know to direct well, you will learn when you're directing. Knowing comes to directing fully formed, I don't think. I think there are people who are very good at it and whose skill is evident from an early age. There's a fair chance there's people like that among you. But from my own personal point of view, I learned on the job and I'm still learning. And there's stuff I've done that I look back on and I think is utter shite. But it's done, there's nothing you can do about that. You must then take from that something that you can build on. And how hard did you find it to get your first foot in the door? Because that, for everybody, is the hardest thing of all, breaking into the world of film and television. It's so, so hard to break in. I think once you're in, you're fine. But how did you make that first move? Did you use charm and humour? or? No, I just, I kind of... I went... There was a very understanding lecturer at university who knew that the theory-based course that they were running wasn't the greatest uh, way into the practical side of film and television. So he would get nights like this in the pub and they would invite people from film and telly and they would tell us what they did. These guys came along, I got to know them, I then kept in touch with them and I would go and do running jobs for them. That's how I did it. And it was just about keeping up those contacts. So when you meet people, it's worthwhile holding on to that, I would say. And then they, I graduated, they needed someone, they got in touch with me, and that's how it happened. There are 800 different ways into it. Everything comes in from different directions. That's my experience of it. Um, and then you worked your way up from runner, and then you became an editor, and then you worked as an editor for, what, six or seven so years? So I went assistant to editor and then edited for about aye, six or seven years. And what kind of material were you editing? Documentaries, uh, factual stuff, wee magazine things. Different stuff. And the way that being freelance in Scotland, you have to just kind of take what you get and, you know, some of them are rubbish, some of them are good fun. But so you, you take something from every job and where, even if that's only the knowledge that you never want to work with those bastards again, then at least you've done it, you know, and you can keep going that way. That's how I did it. And what was your first directing job then? And, and I was terrible, I was rotten at it. And how did your uh, skills as an editor help you to move into being a director? I, 
it was one of the jobs, the first jobs I got was because I'd cut for a company and they were making a series and they knew I wanted to direct, they said, why don't you come and do it? I'd got on very well with this guy who became series director. And I went out and I shot like an editor. And by that I mean, I just went, if I shoot that and then I shoot that, I can make that cut there. And that was at the expense of any flow or understanding or just general knowledge that, you know, sometimes you just have to gather the stuff and put it together later. So while it worked, it was perfunctory and dull and unimaginative because it was short to cut. What was it? It was a, a car programme for Idle World. Oh, yeah, I worked, we, on, that. I I worked on that. I worked on that, yeah. When we went to Japan. I was a production manager. Yeah. Oh, okay. Didn't know that was your first thing ever? Yeah, that was Bloody it. Bloody hell. So, <laughs> and then they didn't employ me again for five years. And I was like, oh, right, okay. But that, that's, that happens, you know. That happened because of where I came from and my stuff, you know. So. Okay, so then you spent a while making documentaries and factual mm -hmm. entertainment programmes. Mm -hmm. You did things like Passengers for Channel 4, sort of late-night teenage thing, The Sunday Show. You did those all the sort of big Scottish entertainment things, the big country. Yeah, um, yeah all the things STV used to make. You did them all, didn't you? Yeah. Um, uh, did you always har harbour a desire to make drama? Yes. I had done. I came from being at university, as I said, I did this film and media course, and I went to study journalism, that's why I was doing English as well. When I got there, a lot of the guys in the course were film heads, and we ended up spending a lot of time in the cinema and staying up late watching films, and that's sort of turned me onto it. And it was after that I thought, that's what I wanted to do. I knew that's what I wanted to do. How I was going to do it, I didn't know. But I finally sort of, as I say, I've got my way into television and film, and I kept holding on to this desire to do drama and eventually I was through a friend who knew that I wanted to do that, he knew someone who was developing a short film, Sonny's, which we're going to show a clip of and I got to meet the writer and producer and they said... And well, how did you convince them or why did they feel convinced that you would be able to, to do drama because it is very, very different, isn't it, from... Well, they, 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 they'd never done anything either. So the three of us were kind of like, well, I think partly they wanted someone they could trust and also someone that wasn't going to run away with their show. So it was that balance of a reasonable amount of ability and a certain amount of humility to know that... Uh, I can say that in retrospect, I've never actually thought of it. Who funded this short film? That was, uh, so that was Scottish Green and STV. Ah, okay. It was what Back we called Prime Cuts. Oh, it was a Prime Cut. So it was a short film scheme. Yeah, short film scheme. It was scheme. a very, very good way for a new talent oh. director to get, to get on. So we're going to show you a clip of Brian's very, very first ever drama, uh, Sonny's Pride, if I can get this to I work. I can just say that it's just the latter part of the film. Basically, it's the older guy you'll see. He's a semi down and out. He's convinced the barman to allow him back in the pub because... The down and out son is in town and he doesn't want him to, to know how desperate his life has become. So he's trying to present sort of a, a reasonable face to his son. So that's what's going on here. And I think it is interesting to remember that, because a lot of people come out of university and expect that they're going to make a film like this straight away, that this came after seven or eight years of working on other kinds of programming and working as an editor and... Uh, 
this was the end of a very long process. Okay, here we go. Please work, please work. Control arrow. Talk amongst yourselves. Oh no, that's the wrong clip. We'll show that in a minute.
that was it. That was the first one I made. And um, looking back at it, you're going, there's things I would change, there's things I would do differently. But I enjoyed it and I learned an awful lot from that. And one of the first things, I think the most important thing I came out with was trying to understand how best to communicate with actors, because I'd never ever done that before. Do you know that's the really amazing thing about that short film, is your first piece of drama, the performances in it are so brilliantly understated. Um, and that's not easy. It looks easy, but it isn't easy to get actors to deliver these brilliantly understated performances. So that, and also you're not afraid of silence. I think a lot of new drama directors are afraid of silence as well. Yeah. They need to fill everything with uh, dialogue. It was uh, trying to do justice to the script as much as anything else because, it, you know, it was a poignant tale, but you only, we only had sort of six minutes to tell it. I, I think the drama within that we film is in what's not said rather than what's said. And that was all to do with Barry's writing as much as anything else. It was based on a true story. He used to work in a bar and an old fella came in and did, did just that. So it came from his experience. And I kind of knew that world as well. I'd worked in pubs like that when I was younger and you'd seen these individuals. And, but I was very fortunate we, when Tom, who plays Sonny, the old guy, said he would do it. And Stevie, who played his son, is very good. And Gary, who you, you probably recognise, he's been around for a while. And he was keen to do it as well. But... What, uh, sorry. What, what was your biggest challenge making that film? Because you'd come from a world where you were working with tiny crews, maybe mm -hmm. you, one cameraman, one sound recordist. And then you go into a drama world and you've got really big crews, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Maybe at least 20 people on a short film, mm -hmm. at the very least. So did you find that move from working with small crews to working with big crews difficult? And how I think the, the, the way I dealt with it, and this is the way I still deal with it, is you can't think about how massive something is. you just got to go. It's one shot at a time, it's one scene at a time, and it's one day at a time. If you start to think about beyond that, I, again, it's a personal thing, but I, I find that quite intimidating. With that, that's, that's when I learned how to do that, I thought. Because even though it's only a wee film and it's 18 years old, the thing, it was the biggest thing in my life when I was doing it. And um, to get some sort of perspective on it, the only thing I could do was go from minute to minute. And I still sort of hold to that. I think that's quite important. And also, the, beyond that, the toughest thing was working out how to speak to cast, as I say, because I'd never done that before. And I decided to just be honest and say, I think we should try this only because I'd like to see how it looks. Because with a big cast, with a cast and a crew, if you start trying to bullshit it, they'll sniff it out right away. Then you're weak. Then your position is weakened. And they'll... As soon as you lose that, you lose the respect of people, you will not make the film you want to make. It's so important. You've got to take people with you rather than bully them. I think. But that's something that's it's taken a long time to learn. But on that one, I, the three guys in the cast, I was like, I'll be straight, this is the first time I've done it. This is why I wanted to do the script. I don't know how you do what you do, but let's just see if it can come through. Some things you like what you say, some things you don't. But. Can I ask you a question? Would this be your first time directing 
Um, this was my first time directing drama, uh, so yeah, prior to that I'd been doing factual stuff too. We've done wee bits of sort of traumatic reconstruction, but as for a full drama from start to finish, frame one to the end, this was the first time, yeah. So I had never worked, for example, with the first AD. I didn't know what they did. And I got a very experienced one who was completely understanding and I sat him down in that pub one night way before the shoot and I said, look, I don't know what you do, will you tell me? And he went, yeah, okay. And that's the best thing you can do. I think that's the way to do it, isn't it? Is to be always really honest about what you don't know and, and ask for the help of the people that do know. Aye. Surround yourself with really good people uh-huh. and learn from them. And, yeah. Yeah. and you should be able to work out if anyone's taking the piss as well. Because you know? that can happen. You're working with a big sort of a bunch of folk and we've got different personalities there and then they'll, they'll, they'll bring different things or they want to take different things from me and you soon want to work out how to do that. Did you struggle at all with very specific drama things like continuity and eyeline? Yeah, if you look, I, the eyelines and some of the things are wrong. Um, there's the those four mixes where the barman is actually watching. His eyeline's the wrong side of the line. Um, and you see that now. See that now. <laughs> but uh, I, fact, I do believe I was told that on the day, and I was like, no, no, it'll be fine. There's a lesson yeah. for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody knows what they're talking about. Pay attention. Uh, but I knew I was with this one. You know, I said about how I'd shot like an editor before. And drama, that serves you a lot better than it does in fact, because you can go. It's particularly we like three days to shoot that, so you have to be as economic as possible. Before. You can't just let the camera run and run, or else you know. And did you did you edit this film as well? No, no. And do you find it? Um, that's another question. Do you find it um, from experience now more interesting when you give it to someone else uh, to have another perspective on? Editing? Yes, absolutely. Because uh, I, I heard Kishowski was said that he never actually wanted editor to be on the set. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wouldn't see what was going on and he wouldn't be attached to some scenes um, and then it would be easier for him to, to get rid of some scenes and I wondered, you as an editor, how did you do films? Did you do at both? First, for the first few things I did it was quite difficult because I wanted to get involved but then I gradually realised exactly what you're saying you bring in a different perspective to it and someone else is seeing something different in your work and mostly that is for the better of it. I used to work with an editor, I, I kind of lost touch for a while, but she would never read the script. She would just look at the rushes and put it together the way she felt the story should go, because she would just follow the action. And then she would look at the script to see if there was anything she missed. And I always admired that, because I thought, she's looking for truth there. Yeah. And um, But I did, when I first started doing sort of factual stuff, I used to edit my own, but you'd end up cutting them notes, cutting yourself into a corner because there's no one to say stop there's no one to say it's working whereas if you have an editor and director you can thrash things out between you but if you're just doing your own and I can, I can understand the appeal of it and the control and stuff like that but personally I just found myself I would have, I'd still be cutting stuff now do you know what I mean it started 20 years ago because you need that moment where someone says stop it's working leave it 
but I know other people who insist on cutting their own stuff. It's just different, you know. I think it's definitely beneficial to have a yes. fresh pair of eyes. And yeah. I, I worked uh, previously at the Matrix as well uh, on films where a director was also an editor mm. and I actually advised him to get someone to edit it because yeah. he was too attached to some scenes yeah. Yeah. and it was not very beneficial for the film. Yeah. Um, and on some other films that I worked, it was much better. When I directed my own film, I also had an editor to kind of have a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. I think it helps, and they're also it's the, the sort of this kind of memento mori role an editor has that no matter how much time and effort you've put into a shot, a good editor say the story's not going anywhere and that you don't have time to pin it, and you go oh, and a crane, you know, a setup, it doesn't matter. You need someone who's got like you see that detachment from. Yeah. Is the story moving? Yeah. No, then get it, get it. You don't need it. Now this short film, nobody really makes short films to make money, you don't get paid no. on them, you make them as a sort of something to advance your career, yeah. although they are beautiful things in their own right of course, but did this short film then help you to move into directing for television, which is what you ended it up did, doing yeah, shortly It took a while, I got, and after a, a year after making that I got an agent and then a year after being with that agent I got to do some proper what I'd call how grown did, up How did you get the agent? I sent them the film. This film? Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I badgered them for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I was with him for a year, and then in 2000 I got to do a, a TV show for the BBC. And between that I was doing kids' drama and schools' dramas. So that was a good way in. Because then he started to learn a bit of discipline and you know, and how to shoot a schedule and all that kind of stuff that you have to do. Smaller budget, smaller crews, less resources, but still the same discipline. Sure. Was it just based on that one piece of work that you got related? Did they ask for anything else or were you happy with that? Uh, he'd seen it and he'd liked it and I went to see him and then told him what else I'd been doing. So I was g- yes and no. Sorry, that's a mealy mouthed answer. <laughs> but yeah, that was the thing. If it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have gotten the door. That was the hook. Aye. Oh. Once I get in the door, then you have to do the dog and pony show and you do all that stuff. But yeah, that was it. Aye. But then, like I say, it was a year of him sending that out to people before someone went, all right, we'll take a, a, a risk. So that's what you're relying on, is people taking a chance, you know. And did you have to hassle the agent for a meeting, or was it easy to get a meeting, or did you have to have determination I think I got somebody, I think it was Andrew, actually, under me. I saw a mutual friend who'd been dealing with him, because he worked for a production company, and he was dealing with these writers. And this guy was coming up and saying, should you meet? So there was a casual bevy, and then there was a, you know, I'm in London, can we go for a coffee? And it was... I suppose I stopped them. Yeah. You, know. you never know. It's also staying in people's it, ken, you know, you stay in their orbit a wee bit and you don't know what will come out of it. It's, it's, there's no point in just going, right, I've done that meeting and then disappearing. You know. And how has having an agent impacted on your career? I wouldn't get the work I do now without an agent. But it's, um, so know. what do they do, the agent? Well, they know what's going on. I work for a, I've got a bigger agency now, I'm not with the same guy. They find out what's going on. They know all the stories that the scripts that come through and who's doing what, and then you know. So did your agent get you the job on Sea of Souls, which was yes. a long? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I helped the, the producer of Sea of Souls in the work for as well. Right. That was another contact. That was a way through there. Yeah. So that's the next clip we're going to have a look at, which is um, 
Sea of Souls, it was a TV series that Brian worked on, BBC Scotland, First BBC Network, network uh -huh. but made up here but for the network. Um, this was quite early on in your drama career, Sea of Souls, 2004. Yeah. So um, you'd already done Monarch of the Glen and Teachers and Taggart, so already starting to build up quite a, a big uh, TV drama, CV. Um, and Sea of Souls uh, won Scottish BAFTA for Best Drama Series, I believe. It's about a, a, sort of a parapsychological investigation unit, if you don't know. It's basically, they were ghost hunters. The show didn't go very well. I'm not sure that Supernatural ever plays that well in sort of what you call console telly. You know, I think of the high numbers, it, it, it does well. But the reason I wanted to show this clip is because it was about making a scene without any chat. It's a kind of it's a development of what we're talking about with the Sunny Spread thing that drama does not always have to be about speech. So that's why I chose this clip. It's been cut off the end. There was a big fight at the end of that. I didn't realise we cut this short. But um, that was great fun to do because there's nothing, uh, there's no score on that, and it's just the sounds of the, the room at night and the radio playing and all that kind of thing. And kind of out of context, it loses a bit of its impact. I would, but, um, that was one of the first things I got to do that wasn't just yak. And it was great fun to do. It was about you know creating an atmosphere and all that kind of. I mean, is this the kind of stuff you want to talk about, or do you want to just talk about career stuff? Because I'll yak about work all day. Now, Sea of Souls, I wanted to ask you, Sea of Souls was a, a series where lots of different directors came in and did oh, an episode each. So how was it for you, how was how it as a director slotting in? There's a lot of series that have umpteen directors mm -hmm. doing a few episodes each. Um, and this is one of them. How, how is it to try and slot in and do you have to fit in with the house style? How do you fit in with the house style but yet make your own mark? Is, is I think you could, the best thing to do is first find out what they think the show is, what, what parameters have they set for themselves. And if there's existing shows to watch, watch them and see that. And then start pushing that bit to it yourself. Because... 
it's got to be a point at which what you make could not be made by anyone else otherwise you could get a dog in the street to do it and that's an extreme example but that's the way I always think what are you going to bring to it that makes it your film it'll always be the producer's show or the network show but what's going to make it your film what are you going to do there that nobody else would have done and it's not about turning the camera upside down or trying to do flashy stuff or anything like that it's just about going how can I make sure that this would be very different for someone else to make it because if it starts becoming too cookie cutter then your worth is lessened for that but then if you're a nice person to work with and you get through your schedule every day yeah there's all of those things yeah. you can meet your mark that way as you well can, you can you uh-huh. can you can have a successful career doing that as well but you want to be offered better work the next time. I think, you know, unless you want to be a journeyman. I, I am a journeyman director. That's, there's no question about that. But to get up the ladder a wee bit, you need to bring something to your game. You need to be up in your game all the time, making your stuff stand out for the right reasons. Because mm-hmm. particularly in episodic television and here and in the US, your reputation is everything. If you've got someone sitting in front of five CVs or five showreels or five different directors and they are not best read and they're not best qualified possibly to make a qualitative decision on that, they then hit the phone or send out emails and they'll say to Carolyn, what's Brian Kelly like? Or they'll phone you and say, what's that guy Brian Kelly like? Have you got an alright guy? He delivers on time, he's a nice guy. Or what? But if you phone the wrong person that you've rubbed up with, he is a fucking nightmare. He did this one day. We had a stand-up fight in the set. He upset the cast. That's you out. Yes. That's what you have to go. And it, takes a, it took me a while to realise that because I thought if you stood up and shouted, and, you know, I thought you could just cover all that in the blanket of passion and say, this is my art. It's not. It's you being a pain in the arse, and that's what they remember. Mm-hmm. Now, that's episodic television. Movies are different. I've never done movies... But my understanding is that the role of the director in movies is much more powerful than it is in television. Television, you're a hired hand. You're there to bring the script to life and make sure it's delivered on time. Yeah. Have you ever joined a, a long-running series? Aye. Point? How did you find the cast responded to you? You have to get them on side. That's part of the fun of the job. Is I think that's one of the best parts of the job. Is Sometimes you can have a cast like you guys at that size and you've got to go right... How can I connect with you? What is it that will make you and I respect each other that's different from what you and I will? Like, you might like a good laugh and an easy-going set. You might take it incredibly seriously. You need your time to prepare and all that kind of thing. That's, you have to make those psychological assessments. And I think it's a terribly wanky way of putting it, but it's the best way of putting it. What is it that's going to make you and I work the best way together? Um, if you can get that, you're halfway there. Sometimes you pick up, I've been on jobs where you pick up and the previous director has dragged the show down and they just want a, a new lease of life. On long run series, you're probably coming in a month at a time. So that's how they work. So what will happen is the show will kick off, the first director starts, the shoot, second director goes into prep as soon as the shoot starts, third director comes on, first director's in the post, second director's on the shoot. The only thing that changes every month are the scripts and the director, the cast and crew remain the same. It's your job to drag them up 
Every two. And the crew can get tired. The crew can get jaded. mad, yeah. yeah. They might have been doing ten weeks of nights. They might have been, you know, things going wrong, all that kind of stuff. And you've got to work all that out. And the best thing to do is be yourself, you know. That's, uh, that's what I think. There's find. a lot, it's a big kind of people industry, isn't yeah. it? There's a lot of interpersonal communication uh-huh, uh-huh. skills that are needed yeah. to make it work. I think the best way to do it is to trust people to do their jobs well and let them know that you trust them and not sort of try and micromanage things. You know, you know what you know. We also let people know what you don't know. But, you know, and if somebody starts taking the piss because of that, and you let them know that you know that as well, if that makes sense, do you know what I mean? Now, shortly after Sea of Souls, you were the lead director on Torchwood. Torchwood um, came out of BBC Wales. Yeah, spin-off of Doctor Who. And um, this, again, was a, a long-running series with lots of directors, but on this you were the lead director. Mm. So... I think we'll show the clip of Torchwood first. Do you want to explain? Right, let's do that. Will we watch it first? Yeah. Um, and then I'll ask you about. Because one of you about this one, so we might kill it halfway through. Right, just give me a give me a sign. Okay. Now with my great skills on that. That a bit early. I know so, it goes on forever. <laughs> so this was the opening of the series. Uh-huh. And you were the lead director. Yes. So talk us through your opening. We, um, 
I was very fortunate and, and being asked to do this, and it was a big, big deal. It was the first time I'd ever done it. But what I didn't realise is when you take on the lead director's job in a big series like that, a lot of your time in prep is dealing with other people's anxieties about what the show is. You know, you've got Russell, who is very, very good, very clever writer, and a, with a very firm vision about what the show should be. Uh, so you have to take that on board, and then you have to take on board the cast and how they're going to behave. And it's, there's a lot going on, but eventually, it gets to the night when you're doing that, and you just have to say, "Right, this is it. This is what we're making. This is what we're doing." But the other side of that is because it's the first one, and everybody wants it to be brilliant. You get a certain amount of latitude in that you say, "I want it to be raining constantly in that scene, and I want a crane." And these things are all expensive, you know. These are you know these are expensive commodities. So you have to get rain effects in, and then get a crane, and then everyone there has to be wearing um, wetsuits underneath them, and all that kind of thing. And the crew all have, and it, it slows your night right down as well because you're standing around and people get cold and all that kind of thing. So it's great fun, and uh, it's one of the best jobs I've ever done. I really, really love doing it, but. Um, it comes with its own attendant baggage, and that is, you know, everyone has an idea of what it is, and it's trying to boil that down and trying to get an idea of what people want from the show before we start to shoot it. Russell T. Davis, you mentioned briefly, who wrote that, uh-huh. really is, I don't know if you know him, but one of the most prolific, important, and brilliant writers in television mm-hmm. in, in the UK. Um, was it intimidating to be working on a script that he'd written? What was it like? No, because he's very supportive and he's, 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 he's... The fact that he's given you the job is... You can't let go of that because there's a hundred people who could have done that job and he's chosen you. So you think, right, OK, that's good. But you have to listen to him. And the scene there, what's happened is basically they've come to discover this dead body. One of the characters pulls out this gauntlet that can bring the dead back to life. That's what's about to happen. When I read it, I said, we'll kill the rain when the body comes back to life and we'll bring the lights up. And Russell was that's not in the script. And I was like, okay, shit. I said, but it's got to happen because otherwise we'll get this 10 minute scene of people in the rain. They're going to be miserable. There's no impact, really. You know, okay, the guy's coming back to life. But if we just dry things out for that moment, and then when he dies, because he only stays awake for two minutes, and he dies, we bring the rain back on, and just it sort of bookends that wee bit. And he went, okay, if you think that'll work, you do it. And I did, and I was like, he went, no, that's a good idea. There was other ideas I gave him. He said, no, that's shit, you're not doing it. It was like that, that cut and dried. There was no discussion. I was something like him. You go, okay, I've made my pitch. He didn't buy it. But, um, so he was quite generous when he felt that you had absolutely. a better uh-huh. idea than he did. Absolutely, yeah, because he, he would never be shy, you know, come into the cutting room and say, that's not working, just take it. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, I'll do it. But um, it's bit, you, you, I kind of suppose you, you take confidence from a thing like that. You know, If you can do it, you should. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, be prepared to stand up to those who hate it. And yeah. say that it's a, it's a fight and you might not win. You know. Do you get any experience of Doctor Who conventions then after? No, I've had a few people write, actually, you know, folk have written and, and um, sent um, like trading camp things, you know, can you sign this? And all, okay, all right, all right. 
But hey, that's about the size of there must be quite a fan there was a lot of pressure from Doctor Who fan base there was an awful lot of expectation about it I think there was a certain and also Doctor Who was being done at the same time so they were like the big show and we were like these sort of young pretenders in the other room so they did the crossover because John's character Captain Jack he'd been in both and um, yeah I think there was a bit of friendly rivalry we had Again, we're a bit more latched because ours was a more adult slot, so we didn't have to be as family orientated as Doctor Who is. It's pretty unique in British drama. There's very few of them can pull it off to get that family slot really well. So we could go more, like you see that in the language there, and then later on it becomes quite graphic, violent, and there's sexual content that you wouldn't get. So we didn't have those restrictions, but also there was a kind of sense of people going, all right, so you're just going to do Doctor Who with tits. Let's see what you do. do you know Sounds what I mean? good. But do you know what I mean? It's a, it, it was a bit, you know, there was a certain amount of... Now, that was such a big break for you, wasn't it? Not, yeah. It was a massive step mm. up to be lead director, to be working with Russell T Davis. That mm. was going to give you lots of kudos. I imagine that you must have absolutely prepped that within an inch of its life. Yeah, yeah. I was there for weeks or more, just wandering around Cardiff and you know, get out and and stuff like that. So what, what do you do in prep? You, start, you read the script and read the script again and then you start to think about references. What what do you want your show to look like? And you go back to shows you've seen. For example, Blade Runner was a big influence on us for that. The neon, the rain, all that kind of thing. That was a very, you know, I think it comes through quite strongly in that. And we wanted a sort of hard, clean, urban look that um, was slightly more gritty than Doctor Who, because Doctor Who can be quite polished in its appearance. And that was for that, I'm not saying that's an wrong thing, but to make it as distinct from that. So there was a lot of to and fro, there was a lot of camera tests, how we look looking for shooting this way, how we're looking for shooting that way, you're doing costume tests, creature tests, all these things that just take up all your time. And you, you know, but it's so important to know. And then you go location hunting and then at night I would go home and watch stuff and say, oh, we can maybe try something like that. Or, um, and other days you just get there and you just go, oh, I'm just so knackered, let's just see what happens and we'll do it that way. You, know? you do storyboards? Story I do a storyboard, uh-huh. I try and storyboard most stuff, only because I can draw a wee bit. They're little more than stick men, but it's a great shorthand for casting crew alike. And a couple of jobs where we're doing quite big scenes, I'll get the storyboards blown up and we'll stick them to the wall. Even for outside, we'll get them on a board. And she said, oh, we're doing that one. We're doing that one. And you just cross it off. Get something with a big red ink, you literally take it through it. Because it's quite good. It fosters a sense of achievement. You go, right, okay, we've got that. We've only got this to do. And, you know. um, I prefer doing that to shortlists. Because after a while, shortlists just become words on a page. And you're going, I can't. If I write a shortlist now for a job I'm working on, which we don't start shooting until the end of June, by the time I get to the end of June, I'll read it and I'll have no idea what it means. Whereas if I draw it and I've got an idea of what the location is, I, I, I could go, right, oh, that's what I was thinking. So it's definitely, I mean, you don't have to be able to do it. It's not a necessary skill. If you feel it's important, you can't draw, find someone who can, and they'll do it. They're a storyboard artist. You, you all know somebody who can draw if that's what you want to do. For me, it works. And the biggest thing that comes out of it is you start, we're, we're working, we all are working in a visual medium. So if you start your planning in a visual medium, with visual tools, then 
I think it helps. That's my way of looking at it. It might not work for everybody else. I know people who don't do storyboards at all. I know directors who just go on the set, see what the actors do, and then they'll plan it out. I know directors who only talk to the actors and they let the DOP and the operator plan their shots. There are no rules to what you do. For me, it's important to know, because I need to know what I'm doing next. That's how I can make the day work. But that's only, that's just the way I do it. But there's one thing I should add, actually, after that. It was a big thing to get that and be lead director on it. It was a massive, massive job. They wanted me back the next year. And I hummed and awed about it, and then I was offered the lead director on another job. And I thought, well, why do I want to go back to Torchwood when I can go up and do another lead director job in this new show in London? I did that, and it was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made, because the show was shite. Oh. It was a terrible script, but I was just... It was absolute vanity, I can now see, that I thought, you know, I know, I've done that, I'll go and do something else. And it set me back, because people saw that, went, well, I didn't really like that last thing that you did. And I go, I was lead director, to, yeah, but you were lead director on this thing as well. I know, you're only as good as the last and thing. And that is, you know, and it was, that was a big lesson, you know, and it was about being bloody-minded and arrogant. What was it? I'm not telling you. Is it on here? Aye, I'll tell you later. I can guess. Nobody ever watched it anyway. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a lesson learned, you know. But it didn't hold you back too much because a few years later, 2010, you directed Downton Abbey. Yes. Which is perhaps the biggest show ever made in Britain. And it sells to the States and they love it. They go crazy for it in the States, don't they? So that was a huge, huge TV drama Mm -hmm. to be working on. I'm going to show a clip and then ask you some questions about Maggie Smith. Right then. (laughs) (laughs) No! What? Lewis? There we are. Are they the compliment that I do not believe you wish to inherit just because nobody's investigated properly? No. But nor can Murray accuse you of making trouble when you are the one who will suffer most from a discovery. You're right that I don't wish to benefit at Mary's expense from ignorance of the law. Putting it bluntly, do you think Robert has thrown in the towel prematurely? What am I sitting on? Uh, swivel chair. Oh, another modern library? Not very modern, they were invented by Thomas Jefferson. Why does every day involve a fight with an American? I'll fetch you. No, 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 no. I'm a good sailor. It will depend on the exact terms of the entail and of the deed of gift when Cousin Cora's money was transferred to the estate. That is all I ask. Understand the exact terms. So, I wanted to show you that clip because what no one had ever told me about before I started directing was how to work with actors. Actually, I kind of alluded it to it earlier. And it, took, it takes ages to work out. It certainly has taken me ages to work out what they do. I don't know a lot about acting. But, as I was saying earlier, it's that thing about where you're trying to make an assessment at what point you can click with people and then, you know, how they work. So then you go to Downton Abbey and you've got herself in it. 
who is one tough old woman, right? And she's seen everything. She's done everything. You can't, you can, she can smell your shite miles away. You know, she just, and she's constantly poking and testing. Because she's quite mischievous in that respect. And everyone, but everyone on the show, me included, we were all kind of walking in eggshells around her. And we got to that day, and we had to do that gag with a swivel chair. So she came on, she went, so, I went, aye, how are we going to do this then? I went, well, I'm not sure. She went, okay, you're not sure. I went, well, okay, Maggie, well, you could sit maybe side saddle and shift your weight, and what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, you could do that and sort of try to show up without touching her, because it's like having the queen. You know, so, so if you do, she went, Oh, okay. I, you, and you think that'll work, do you? And I went, mm, well, I, th- I, th- I think it's worth a try. And she went, You think it's worth a try? And I went, Yeah. She went, Well, you're the fucking director. What am I supposed to do? And I went, You're the fucking actor sitting in the fucking seat. Let's get a bit of a go, will we? And she went, Okay then. And I walked away like that. Oh, God. <laughs> I thought I was ready to keep walking off the set and just get my jacket. And after that, she was fine. Because she wants to tease and poke and, and be mischievous you know and it's about testing you and that was the only way I felt I could do it and I was absolutely shiting it when I did it but it worked and after that we were you know oh it's you it's nice to see you again and all that kind of thing because you could sail and do a bit and sail out again you know? but that was it that was you know I couldn't have done that in 1998, it took seven years of working, well more than seven, when was that, 2010, so that's 12 years of work, getting to the point where you think, I can actually do this now. Not direct, but direct someone of that stature. And sometimes it was quite intimidating because you didn't know what kind of mood was coming onto the set and all that kind of thing, but all the time I kept thinking, the more you do this, the better equipped you have to deal with bigger more famous actors. I haven't worked with many more famous actors, to be said, but all the time, what kept me going through was the skills you learn dealing with her will stand you in good stead for later if you ever get to do features and meet people like that. So that's what I mean. No one ever told me that. You know, when I was wanting, you just thought, I'm going to come in, I'm going to throw the camera about here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to steal that shot from Kurosawa, and I'm going to do that with one car white, and I'm going to be like Billy Wilder and all that kind of thing. Not once did I ever realise that without your cast and their respect, your film is dead in the water. And it takes a long time to learn that. You know, and it's, getting them on side is the most important thing. Even if you're working with people who are unknown, they must trust you. If they don't trust you, they don't have to like you. Respect helps, but they absolutely must trust you. Because no matter how much bravado or angst or ill temper it brings to the set it's all masking one thing which is fear and anxiety about how they look how they appear and if I have nothing to say to an actor after a scene or a take I'll just go right let's go with that and I'll go is that okay and I'll go if it wasn't okay I would do it again I have nothing to say about it because earlier on you used to go, yeah, that was really good, but see when you say that word, the, could you go the instead of that? And, and then, and could you, you know, 
could you turn around on that word there and then maybe just lift your elbow like that? And you can see him just going, you're a dick. So if you don't know what you're talking about, don't speak. If you do know why you want to go again, if you do know what you think the scene's about, if the scene has missed its point or that performance has veered away or it's underpowered or just a bit flabby or lazy or you say that. But if you've nothing to say, don't say it. Do you stick very precisely to the script or do you yes. your actors to improvise as well? Depends who the writer is. In television, the writers, now a lot of writers are execs and their scripts, particularly somebody like Russell or Pete Bowker, who I worked with, who wrote the A-word, he's, uh, the words are sacrosanct. What I sometimes do is we'll say, if that line's not working, we'll shoot what's on the page and then we'll try something different. But always cover yourself because the last thing you want is them to come down and say, say you're doing that again. That's just a sort of wee political game that I've learned. No, if you get your cast inside, get them to understand you, and don't be afraid to get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, face up. Do you get much rehearsal time on a show like Downton no. Abbey? No, not at all. But the same you get there, because they've all been up and running, the lead director gets to rehearse. So the ca- that's more for the cast as much as it is for him. Um, but by the time you're there, you get to block the scene, and then you shoot it. You don't get rehearsed, you know. You block the scene, you build a bit of rehearsal in there. Let's try this, let's try that. Oftentimes, it's about getting the cast together and saying, OK, what's this scene about? What do you think it's about? You know, is it about this, is it about that? Where are we going here? And, you know, where have you been and stuff? And sometimes your job is just to remind them what came before. They're only human, they can't keep everything in their heads. Some actors are very good at tracking their characters through a story, some aren't so good. But it can make a big difference if you get the pitch wrong. And you've got to be there to say, no, actually, you know, just you. Remember what was coming up before. And it's not really about what's coming after. I try not to... Uh, try not to get to people to play to what they don't know, because the character doesn't know what's coming in the future. So it's, I always think it's best to just react to what's happening in the moment or what's gone before. We don't want them to get ahead of the audience. Because no one knows that. You know, you don't know what time your bus is coming the night when you go up the roads, you know, that kind of thing. You get ideas, say, but you can't really plan in that. In the same way that as a, a, a character in a moment doesn't know what's coming next. They hope, they can plan and all that kind of thing, but until they're in the moment, it's not good. That's why I would never say, do this because I need it for the next bit. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, it, again, other people are like, I need you to do that because this makes them. For me, I don't think that's so important, you know. Was there ever a moment where you felt that you and an actor had clicked, that you had got the, when the performance came across, mm-hmm. that it really made the hairs on your own neck? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. that point, I'm fortunate enough that when I've had somebody do my own work, Aye. Uh-huh. And I was just wondering, you know, from, from seeing somebody else's work, but somebody that you, you're working with the cast, you're working with the script, uh-huh. you've married it together, and for the first time you see it coming together, yeah, I think you, um, it's a couple of different. Like, it's not quite that example, but to go back to Sonny Sprite, when Tom, the old guy, he dips over and takes a sip of the Guinness before he lifts it up, that was something he brought to the script. Tom had an alcohol dependency problem when he was growing up. 
all during the shoot, it was written in the script that he would buy a pint of Guinness, it was specific to the script. The props guys could not make a non-alcoholic pint of Guinness. There's no way of doing it. There's nothing that looks like Guinness except Guinness. This has been going on for the two days when the pub props guys are coming and say, Brian, this, and it looks like coffee, and I'm like, no, it doesn't work. Tom, the actor, comes over and says, son, can I have a word? The Guinness thing, I said, aye, he says, I'll drink it. I said, you can't. You haven't drunk for 15 years, you know. You're... He says, no, I'll do it, and I'll do it for you. I would only do it for you. And he did. And I was like, that, that's what I thought. He and I, you know, that was an incredible amount of trust, you know, for someone to actually jeopardise his health because he felt close to the project and he felt enough faith in me. That was very, I've never actually had anything quite as touching as that happening. So I've had people, you know, you can turn around their performance and bring it back to life, but never had that degree of genuine trust. I think this next clip's very moving, so I'm going to put that on now. This is, again, Downton Abbey. The reason I chose that was to go back to your point about the script. It was a page and a half, almost two pages of dialogue across that doorway. That's the beginning of a blossoming relationship between those two characters, Anna and Bates. And as written, he comes to the door, they have this chat, you shouldn't be here, I know, but I heard you went well, I brought you this, well thank you very much, you could get into trouble, blah 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 blah. So we shot that, and I said, right, let's do it again. And they went, what do you mean? I said, do it without saying anything. And they were both like, okay, let's do it. So we did that, and I said, I've got myself covered because I'd shot the dialogue. So if anything comes up, you know, we can put that in. This is very, we were lucky. But I think we were ahead of ourselves in the day. I just thought, let's do it. And then I cut it and put it in, and nobody said anything. They just went with it. Because it worked, yeah. And that was Julian Fellows, like, you know, Lord Fellows of Down kind of thing. And he's absolutely. A stickler for the script, the script is it. But, you know, again, it's not something I would have done in my first job, but by that point, I got to know the cast quite well, and I thought, well, let's try it, you know. 
And it wasn't about saying this is absolutely right, it's just going, let's try it. You know? So you can do those things. If you, you, it always goes back to, as I say, it's going back to trust and confidence. Um, you mentioned lead director. Uh, what do they do on the set when you're directing a particular episode? Uh, they're in the edit by then, so they don't uh, oversee anything. You know, They set the tone. They'll develop the look of the show with the designer, the costume designer, the DOP, that kind of thing. So that's kind of set. And so you go in and you inherit that. But they aren't very rigid parameters. There's ways around it if you think you know, you're pushing it. And I think every director will admit they want to try and better their peers. So you often watch what the guy or woman before you has done. All right, I'm going to better than that. I don't know how, but I will. Because they're very competitive, no matter how much, you know, there's everybody talks about, you know, the guild and all that kind of thing. That's great, it's very supportive, but, you know, you watch what other people do and go, right, okay. Get you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Is that you wish you had got in a series? Oh, aye, aye, yeah. You wish you get your hand Aye, definitely, aye. Sometimes you're sitting watching, you know, like someone like Lewis, for example, I've done you, sometimes you get pages and pages of two people in the room talking, and then you see somebody else has got a big catch, and you're like... <laughs> How much involvement do you have in post-production you would, on these long on these, You would get probably about 10 days per episode to fine cut, then you show it to the grown-ups as we call them and then they come in and things start to change and then it twos and pros and stuff. You fight your corner but ultimately you've got to respect their position as much as your own and say, okay, you're in charge. But that doesn't mean you rule over. I would never say that, but you have to, um, you know why you did a thing the way you did it, and if it still works, and you can make a positive case for it, and do so without you know, throwing your toys out of the pram, then you get a chance of holding on to it. But uh, it depends on the individuals involved, depends on the production, depends how rigid they are. You know. Did you, for example, pick that piece of music on that last clip? No, I mean, we put something not dissimilar, we put guide. Uh, so we often do that. I don't know if you when you get to the edit. Unless you, if you're in the long run of series, you might have a library of music from the previous series that the composer's done. So you can steal that and just use that as game. Other times we often go in and, 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 and pile of soundtracks from movies and just sit with the CDs and pull stuff out and see if it suits the mood because it works for the viewing and also works for your composer because your composer can understand the emotion that you're trying to bring to it as well. What's very interesting there actually is there's far more music on TV drama than there ever, ever used to be. Because like that scene in Sea of Souls, granted the radio plays through it, but it's interesting watching go, when it, I haven't seen a scene without chat that doesn't have music on it for that length of time, but now it's like everybody's going, just chuck music at it. Sometimes you think, you know, the audience are daft, they don't need to be played with the nose. So anyway, now, yeah, final clip. Can I show a final clip? Yes, yes. Um, one of the most recent things you've been doing, well, you did AD, the Bible continues, which sounds awesome, but we don't, have a clip, we don't have a clip of that. Um, Outlander, which, of course, is the big um, stars, American-funded show that um, is based in a studio in Cumbernauld. Scotland does have a studio in Cumbernauld. Um and you've done quite a few Outlanders, Four. haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I met the cast from Outlander and they absolutely love working with Brian. I think the cast 
really do like working with you. Um, so we're going to show, there's, we've got a couple of clips, we might have time to show them both, but um, we'll show this one first. It's beautifully shot, this clip. Because your husband shot it? Yeah. <laughs> Now, Brian, I've noticed from the very first clip to this clip that your shooting has moved from lots of close-ups like that uh -huh. to wider and wider and wider. So I think your Outlander stuff looks the most cinematic. I mean, is this something that you've deliberately been moving so. to bigger landscapes? Or? No, I think it, it was funny when I was putting it together, I felt the same thing. And I thought, because we look at the early stuff, it's all... Because big close-ups are safe, and you know you're getting everything, and you, you know you've got somewhere to cut, and then gradually you start to sit back and you think, well, people's tellies are bigger, and you know they're used to bigger, bigger screens, and also it looks better, you know. I think that is the preserve of, of, of I think the preserve of soaps and, and, and sort of daytime drama and stuff, whereas what I always wanted to do was make films, and you start watching films, and there's very little of that, and it's more of that, you know. But when it came to um, that scene, we found that old kirk, which is above uh, Curus in Fife, and I have this very specific idea. Sometimes when you go to a set, I don't know what's going to happen. I, it was, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Stephen Frears, he said the most exciting thing about the day's filming is when the cast came on. Because you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's true. I, I really agree with that. Because 
I can draw it and we can work it with the crane's going to go, we can do all that. But then when the cast come on, they're going to do something and you have to react to that. And that's kind of, I would say, is the, 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 the way I work most. I just go, right, here's the space, do this. Try not to get yourself jammed against the wall because we can't light you. Know, but um, let's see what you're going to do, you know. Whereas with that, I knew exactly how I wanted to use that space. I wanted to create an almost a dance. So that was kind of almost choreographed that he goes out one side and she stays in. And it was to get the best of the building. And slightly romantic, wee bit flirtatious. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a pre-echo. It's a fucking terrible phrase. But it, gives, it's, you know, it, it's, it gives us an idea of where they're going because that's a developing romance. And I was very kind of keen on that. The big Sam who plays Jamie, he was like, no, we should just stand still because I'm scared of being here. And I was like, no, that's wrong. And I very rarely would say that to an actor, but he was like, no, no, this just feels wrong we're doing this. And I went, no, you've got to trust me. The reason we're here. So if you wanted you to stand still, we'd be doing it in my mum's backyard. It's as simple as that. I need you to do this. And that was a wee bit of friction, but it was fine. It was resolved, but that was one point where I was like, no, I've got to stand my ground because if I don't, I'm not going to get what I want. Now, I could back off this sort of minor confrontation for the sake of peace and just, we'll get it done. But I know in five weeks' time when I'm sitting in a cup room, I'm going to hate that. So that's what you have to hold on to. On every, for every decision you make, you have to convince people it's the right thing. About where you put the camera, about how they pitch a performance, about how you light it, all these things. And once it's done, it's done. It's up there forever. So, the only advice that anyone ever gave me about directing, and it's the only one I would ever give to anyone else, is never be afraid to change your mind. That's the best thing anyone ever said to me. And it seems such a pat thing, but it's so important. If you've set up a shot and you've laid a track, and it's taken a day and a half to get everything there, and you blew it, and it's not working, change it. Otherwise, you're stuck with it. And before we watch the final clip, because I think we need to... Have we got to, time? We can watch two minutes of the clip, can we? Yeah. Um, quick question. Last question. Um, Outlander, of course, is run by stars, and the exec producer's Ron Moore, who did Battlestar Galactica, and it's American money, American execs. Is it different working for the Americans? No, not particularly. Um... Oh, that's a boring answer. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 well, no. it's, it's different in a good way. We had more money, more resources, more time. So we could do things like, you know, like saying, I want to be in that set first thing in the morning because the light's brilliant. Whereas sometimes on more low budget show, you would just go, you're going when you can. You know, we've got other things to do. But that day, specifically, I said I want to be there at that time. I want a crane up in the trees, all that kind of thing. Um, but the differences aren't as marked or worthy of no, as you would imagine, really, you know. Big difference was you just do a sort of two-week assembly of the edit, get it to the way you want it, and then it goes out to the States, to his editor, and they'll be cut. That's what they do. And they send it back, you can have an argument with them about it, but, you know, that's the role of the, the, the job there. Um, I think they were slightly... It took us all the while to get to know each other, they used to have producers on set sitting next to you saying, try this, try that, whereas we don't do that. So the producers would come and say, maybe you should try shooting. And I was like, I don't need that. 
Yeah, but I'm, and I was like, no, I don't, you know, and eventually came, of course, we falling out, but I was like, well, that's not how we do it here. Oh, that's how we do it in the States. That kind of thing, there's a wee bit more. So, a bit more interference. No, I, you know, the, the, their role is a bit more in the directing sphere than it would be here. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. But generally, um, not, not as big a difference as I thought. Because the first thing I did, I went to uh, Bulgaria, eh, not Bulgaria, Hungary, to work on a show called Dracula for ABC. And I thought, I'm really going to have to up my game here. This is me, I'm working for the Americans, I'm going to have to be top four. And I got there, and it was a shambles. Mm. And I was just like, come on, I thought you guys were like, you know, we would all come to learn from you. And it was an absolute mess, and scripts were a mess. So, Outland is not a shambles. No, Outland is very well. very, very well. Very tight shit, very yeah. well. Okay, so I'm just going to show this last clip just because it's a brilliant homoerotic whipping scene from Outlander. But That's not I, why I chose it. <laughs> I think it just shows, brill- I mean, it's brilliantly well made. The camera movement is amazing. The performances are just brilliant. I mean, I think everything about this is, is amazing and it, it shows that you're very clever. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Let's go for a drink. This is, you can ask questions after this one if you've got any. A poor Highland boy. I take your meaning. That boy is a wanted thief and murderer. I was told he merely stole a loaf of bread. Did you call McKenzie tell you that? Hmm. He was there. He witnessed it. The thief had been flogged before for trying to escape. One hundred lashes administered by the corporal, a man not without skill using the cat of nine tails. Thief did break. No, he took his punishment without making a single sound. It's a very bad example for the assembled onlookers, both soldiers and civilians. I could not allow that insult to the crown to pass unchecked. So yes. I decided the further 100 lashes were in order. Alright. This time, I would administer them myself. I 
my stomach flat and my legs shake. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think it's just brilliant. It's so captivating and moving and horrific and all. I mean, it's just brilliant. Well, just if I can briefly say, that I wanted to choose that because what we ended up with was what we sometimes call a lockdown episode and what Americans call a bottle episode. So basically, often in a run of a show, the budget needs to. It's maybe been overspent in some places and they need to save. So what they'll often do is if you've got a standing set, they'll set a whole episode in there. So there's no location. And so it's a, it's a very economic way of keeping the cost down and sort of amortising the, the budget across the show. Which is kind of what we did there. So basically they've been in that room for pretty much the whole episode, those two. And the majority of the episode is Cat uh, and Tobias uh, in that room. Um talking about that but the, the, the fresh air we get if you like is the, the flashbacks to the flogging that he's talking about we were in that room for like seven days and it was one of the most intimidating things I'd done because I thought there's nowhere to hide I knew I had the, uh, the, the flogging scene to cut to and from but aside from that for a lot of it was just the three of us and I was it wasn't until afterwards I said to both of them that was quite one of the scariest things I've ever done they said we felt the same because, you know, the, the carrier, and it's also incredibly exciting, and it's great for them, they get to do uh, sort of tour de force performances. Mm. You know, it is a massive tour de force performance. For both, for both of them. I mean, so incredibly. They're really, really Because really um, oftentimes, you know, you're hoping for four to five people in the room, you can go, well, if that's not working, I'll go there. You know, or you, if you're talking about that, that performance isn't the best, I'll, 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 I've got somewhere to cut to and all that kind of thing, but it was just the two of them. But it was great fun. They were wrung out by the end of it, absolutely like baked, shattered. But um, again, something that I couldn't have done five or six years ago. I wouldn't have had the confidence to do. I mean, if I'd had to, you'd have given it a go, but it was, a, it was an accumulation of experience and, and just thinking, well, I think I can, I'm ready to do something like that. So... Um, it's brilliant. Any questions? Can I ask a question kind of related to what you're talking about? For instance, even the night before something like that, where yeah. you're in bed, are you still to this day 
sleepless? Yeah. Or like, so that doesn't go away? No, it doesn't go away. Um, I think if, once you get into the middle of the shoot, you're so knackered, yeah. you sleep anyway. But the night, always, first night, you never sleep. First night of a new job or no. something? Different. First night before a shoot, you never sleep. Or but if I it was a thing like that, then you, again, there was something different. But, I think um, that's why you're so good because you do care about everything you do and you don't get blasé. The people that get blasé and sleep easily are usually the lazy, not so good people. Yeah, but still, I don't. Um, the times when I've not been like that is when the children been shaking. Why would you say that was? Was that just? I mean, obviously you'll be totally prepped. You know everything. But there's something still in your mind. Something's still in your mind. You've got. Have I thought of that? Have I got that sorted? What's going to happen if that goes wrong? What if I sleep in? Even things like that. You know. Um, do I know what's going to happen? This is my first day. I'm presenting myself to all these people who don't really know me, and I have to show them that I'm capable. That they're all got the shit being given. That is it's, it's anxiety. How big is the crew on Outlander? Oh, about 120. 120 people, and you've got to be at the centre of that. But the point is just everyone's to remember, waiting yeah. for you to make everything else happen, aren't they? But it's like you, you break it down in a pocket. You go, right, well, they've got a big department. I'll just talk to the head of that department, and you trust them to disseminate that down to their team yeah. in the same way that you do everybody else. But it's such a huge responsibility. Like, no wonder you have a sleepless night the night before it starts. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Always. And do you decide at all to cover if they're going to be used? Or um, is it in your power to decide what camera you want to have? Depends on that. The, the cameras were set up already before we came in. But um, this one, I'm lead director that I'm going to do. I'll talk to the DOP. Because I don't know about cameras. I know what they do, but so I, I don't have do a massive... Do you actually have some knowledge? Because nah. You, you, yeah. I know what a short size I want, and I know how yes. what lens I think it should be on, but after that... I, that's why I tried to work with like Carlin's or Neville or another DOP I work with these are people who understand that I don't know but they're not going to take the piss for that because I'll just say I want it to feel like this or I think we should be on a longer lens or a shorter lens there but you know as regards exposure left stop I've got very scant knowledge of that I wish I had more, That's and I'm trying to learn. But you don't need to know, do you? You don't because need to know. You, you, you say me, you don't need know. to know. It helps to have a broad understanding. <laughs> because once you have a broad understanding of what each department does, you will then know, and I, I genuinely mean this, you will know when they're taking the mickey out of you. Mm. I think that's why it's important to know. But as soon as you think you know more than you do know, yeah. So, so you can actually discuss with them, and so they don't see you. Yeah. Um, is, you, if, is it just as honest as saying, "I want it to feel like this or look like this"? Yeah. Can you yeah. do that for me? Okay. In the same way, I wouldn't go into the costume department and ask to thread a, a, a thread a sewing machine. I don't know how to do that either. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. other directors love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Me, I don't need to. I, for me, I, I, not because I'm fantastic or anything, I don't mean that. I just don't think I need to have those, that knowledge. That's great <laughs> to hear that because I thought that... Because that's the big hoodoo for a lot of people. If you're getting to some, to some kind of yeah. level, you pro- I, I have this impression that you, as a director, probably have to know everything about equipment and stuff. So it's kind of reassuring. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. What I do know is that like, in the edit, I know... Okay. What you find a lot, actually, is, very briefly, I would say this, 
a lot of people will say, oh, we can fix that in post. And I was like, no, you can't. You can, but it's going to cost a lot of money and more money than you have. So my, I think my, my strongest, my broadest knowledge is in post-production because that's how I grew up, if you like. And so when people say, oh, I can take that out in post, you say, yeah, you can, but it's not as straightforward as you think. So that is one place where I would stand my ground in that respect. Anything else? Are we done? This should we be good home? Any other? Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering, did you shoot on two cameras? Yes, most of the time now you do. Used to be a lot of single camera, but gradually over the last five or six years I've noticed more and more two camera shoots coming in. Sometimes the same camera doesn't come out of the van. Is that different for you as a director? What I tend to do is get, it tends to be A, B, C cameras. So A camera is your main camera. Get A camera working, and then if B can get a shot, I'll just say do that. But one of the worst things that I, I think, not one of this, that's over dramatic, but I made a mistake once when I was trying to take two cameras side by side on a shot, and it was a, a chance scene. And both of them were just off the eye line, and neither of them could get straight onto the eye line because the other one was in the way. And of course, production, I'm going, this is great, you're hoovering through this material, and then you get it back and it looks shit. So I'll never do that again. But. If you can get your second camera in, then by all means use it. Yeah. But it's not the great saviour that a lot of people think it is. You know? um, but big things, like, for example, the flogging scene, we had four cameras on that. But you have to because it was the middle of winter. We had about five hours of daylight. And so all that crowd stuff, you get people you rely and trust on... B, C and D cameras and say, like, give me, you stick with these people there and make sure you get all those reactions. Well, I'm on A camera doing all the main stuff with the crane and around Sam and Tobias. So in big shoots like that, that's when you feel like you're, you're live at Hamden when you've got four monitors and you're just going, I have absolutely no idea what's happening because I can't watch four pictures at once. So make sure you get the story and the rest tends to look at it. So and then you just give it all to the editor. When you're approaching a director's agent um, to, you know, to get that agent, yeah. what would you say you need to sort of approach them to sort of, or to like, I guess, get them to study your body of work, work? Or yeah, is work. that all that's what you need? Yeah, mm-hmm. work, tapes. The thing is, you, you, you've all got access to filmmaking material, far more access to that kind of stuff than we did. And I don't mean to sound like the old man in the sea, but, you know, the idea that 30 years ago when I wanted to do this, that you could actually make a film on a phone. You know, that's, that was like the Jetsons, you know, that's pure sci-fi. Now you can do that. And that ability, you know, what people look for, I think, in a director is the ability to tell a story and tell a story well. Now, once you augment that by being, you know, because you, you you go to one extreme, you're Terence Malick, and you go to another extreme, extreme, you're Woody Allen. They're both storytellers, but they're both very different filmmakers. But what they have in common is that ability to be clear with their t- maybe not so much Terence Malick lately, but you know to go to take a script, bring it to life, do it justice. You can do that in your living room, you know. So you've got all those abilities there, you know, and. The references you need are all around you. That ability to just open your computer and say, I wonder how 
Billy Wilder would have done this. There it is, it's there. You know, you don't have to wait till it comes to the GFT or anything. So you've got all of that at your disposal. You can make stuff. Make stuff, make stuff, make stuff. If you don't make stuff, you end up like these guys that we used to know who grew up and they were always in the pub talking about the film they were going to make and they still haven't made it. Make stuff. Uh, can I ask, uh, if you don't know anyone you're about to work with, who would be the first person you'd make friends with on set? DOP, probably. DOP in the first, because they'll get you through it when you start to melt. Your first AT and your DOP, your lighting car, they'll be the ones to you know, keep you upright. I think they keep the wheels in the bus. Yeah, definitely. And then the cast. You know, get to know the cast. Don't be intimidated by them. If there is a casting director, do you also decide about cast? Yeah, yeah, you do. But then uh, that also has to go up to the studio or the network, whoever you're working for, and they've got to approve all that kind of thing. Smaller parts, they tend to be fine, but, you know, like the thing we're casting at the moment, they want approval on the three leads. And that's, that's the rules. There's no point in arguing with that, because the house is always going to win that argument. So you must just bow to that pressure. You could certainly make your case. And as sort of civil and unhistorical a way as possible. Yeah, you've always got to show your work to the people that have financed it, haven't you? Yeah. I think a lot of directors resent the fact that they have to do that and resent interference from execs and the people that have put the money forward. But again, you've got to be gracious in the way you do that and find clever ways to make the execs approve what you want them to approve uh-huh. uh, rather than being confrontational about it. Yeah. And it won't come looking for you, that's the other thing as well. You've got to go down and hunt it down. You'll get breaks, you'll get chances to do stuff, and you've got to weigh up the worth of that chance and stuff. But, you know, I mean, it's... It's really tough, isn't it? It's tough, and it's not for everybody as well. You know, but... But it's worth it. When it goes well, it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. It goes really well, yeah. Anything else I can tell you? Any final questions before popcorn? Sorry, you touched earlier on an experience with what we have uh-huh. Any practical tips of what will be multiple actors? Um, if you get the chance, I would say go and find a, a, a theatre group, possibly. Get involved with them, see what they're doing. Understand the actor's psyche, or get to college, or... I don't know, are you, are you a graduate of...? No. Sorry? I studied television. Uh-huh. And whereabouts? Right, so was there a drama group there or, or anything like that? Is there anyone you know there? Uh, I, I do know of theatre companies. That Go and chat the door and just say, can I sit in when you're putting a play together or something like that? Just, there's no, none of that is, 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 is worthless. It's all going to come in handy if that's what you want to do. Because even if it's just understanding how the makeup of, of actors, how they think, how they approach things, which will be different from your approach. Because it is, and it's a kind of democratic process, what we do. But yeah, do that, or get your script, write it, and find somebody, write a two-hander that you can film in one room, and get two people that you, you, you know, or, or, or do a wee bit of casting around and find it. There's always going to be people who want to be in your film. Always. The level of their, of their, their, their how well-known they are, that will alter as you get more experience and stuff, but... 
af forskellige, you know, if you're not, you know, taking the piss out of them and you're honest with them, then you'll always find people who do it, do that. You can't go wrong, you know, and you may, you, you make mistakes, that, but that's fine, that's why you do it, you know, but local theatre groups, college theatre groups, even amateur dramatics, you know, let's go and find out what they're going to do. Definitely. Popcorn time? Yes. I think um, I'm kind of going to just stare out for a little bit. We are actually a lot over time. Are we? So, <laughs> but um, I think we should get a photo done.